In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the fourth Sunday of Epiphany, that season when we talk about uh, the Lord manifesting himself, the Lord making himself known to the world and to the church. We've talked about the way that he does that through his birth, the way that he does that through his ministry, through his sacrifice on the cross. We talked about the way that the Lord makes himself known through his Holy Spirit, and that he makes himself known through his Holy Word, the Scriptures. We've talked about the course of the scriptures in salvation history and the way that we have to know that that shape and course of salvation history. And we did our uh, quick run through salvation history last week. I'd like to do that again. So if you'd again join with me in buckling your seatbelts and getting ready to jump on the I-15 of salvation history, we're going to take a quick run through it uh, as briefly as we can. So remember that uh, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and they are put forth to multiply. They do that and the human race uh, grows considerably. And the growth in the number of people, of course, is the growth in sin and wickedness. And when uh, sin permeates the world, uh, the Lord says, I'm going to cleanse it. I'm going to wash it with the flood. He preserves in the flood Noah, a righteous man, and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem becomes the father of the Semitic peoples, out of whom Abram descends. Abram uh, from Ur, the Chaldees, is uh, spoken to by the Lord, and he's made this covenant promise that if he goes to the promised land, uh, he will have uh, become the father of a great people. So he goes from Ur, the Chaldees, and he follows the Fertile Crescent up into Syria and down into the promised land. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob wrestles with God and is renamed Israel. Israel has 12 sons, the 11th of whom is Joseph, who preserves the family in their descent into Egypt, where they grow and are blessed. You remember that they grow from 70-some people into a nation of several hundred thousand over 400 years. And the Lord, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, brings them up out of Egypt by the prophet Moses. Moses leads the people across the Red Sea into the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness that the Lord begins to give the people the Holy Scriptures. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and Moses begins to write the course of salvation history in the first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. They have this uh, law with them when they enter into the Promised Land, led by Joshua, and it's there that they are ruled by, um, by judges for several hundred years. Moses is about 1500 B.C., and uh, by about 1000 B.C., we see the rise of the kings. There are three kings that rule over that united kingdom of the 12 tribes of Israel. We have uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon is the last of the united three kings. Solomon has a son by the name of Rehoboam, who it turns out to be a fool, and he enters them into civil war. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel is in the region that we call Samaria, and the region around Galilee where Jesus is born and raised, and where he does most of his ministry. That's in the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom preserves worship in Jerusalem, and they're tightly packed as the tribes of Judah and Benjamin around the city of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. 
And about 900 BC, so only about a thousand years into the Civil War, the northern kingdom gets uh, a wicked king by the name of Ahab. And Ahab takes uh, for himself a wicked wife by the name of Jezebel. Part of the danger of Jezebel is that she's not of the tribe of Israel, as they had been commanded to keep wives from within the nations. But he takes a wife from the Phoenicians, who are along that northern coast above northern Israel, where we see those twin cities of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are in that Phoenician coastland, and Jezebel is a Phoenician that Ahab marries and brings into his kingdom. You remember that Jezebel and Ahab are so wicked that the Lord sends Elijah to minister to the people and to warn Ahab and Jezebel against their wickedness. And uh, Elijah flees up into that region of Phoenicia, um, ironically, where Jezebel is from, and where he meets the widow of Zarephath. Elisha follows Elijah. And Elisha, too, is ministering in that northern kingdom of the region of that we now call uh, Samaria, or the region of the Samaritans at the time of Jesus, and uh, in that region where Jesus grows up. And we see that uh, king of Syria, uh, that general of Syria, Naaman, descend down and Elisha ministers to him. In this line of the prophets of Elijah and Elisha and those that uh, speak to uh, Israel and to Judah, we have today a prominent uh, prophet by the name of Jeremiah, or as the King James calls him, Jeremy. Jeremiah is a prophet at the time uh, that Judah falls to the Babylonians. You remember that the northern kingdom falls first in about 700 B.C., the southern kingdom in about 580 B.C. is finally sacked, and Jeremiah is in the city when it is overtaken. He's in the city during the siege when they don't have food and they don't have water. He's in the city when they finally are um, brought out. And he's part of a group. He's taken slavery by his own people that flee to Egypt, even though Jeremiah warns them not to. The lesson that we have today is the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. So here he is in the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies, and his own people won't listen to him. The Lord speaks to him and begins his life as a prophet. And of course, Jeremiah tells the Lord when he calls him, much like Moses told the Lord when he was called, I can't do it. I'm too young. I can't speak well. I don't have experience. I've got no resume to be a prophet to Israel. And this should be something that's familiar to us because it's something that we hear and say all the time, right? When we hear that the Lord has ministry, that there's ministry to be done in the church, that there's work to be done, we say, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too busy, I don't have the experience, I don't have the skill set, right? And our expectation with one another so often is to do as the world does, which is to build that person up and to say, oh no, you'll be fine, you'll learn, you're not that young, you're not that old, you, you'll be able to do it. And we build each other up. Is that what the Lord does to Jeremiah? Not at all. The Lord says, yes, you're right. You are too young. But I am giving you the words. So the Lord doesn't say, Jeremiah, you're enough or you have enough. The Lord says, I'm providing the words. I'm providing the strength. 
I'm providing the course. I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling you what to say. You're not to depend on your own strength. You're to depend upon me. You're not to depend upon your own strength. You're to depend upon the Lord. And that needs to be our answer to anyone who says, I'm not qualified. You're right. God is. And so the people of Judah are led in slavery into Babylon. They're there for 70 years and finally the leadership comes back. They reestablish worship in the temple. They cleanse it. And only less than 200 years later, the Greeks come through. And Alexander the Great again decimates the temple. His generals again decimate the temple. They reestablish it under the Maccabees. And soon the Romans come in. And we see the Romans beginning to tighten their grip on Jerusalem and the worship there at the time of Jesus. So Jesus now, with the Romans in place, in a Greek-speaking world, is facing the same kind of people in this northern kingdom of Israel, this region that we now call Samaria, or the region of Galilee, that uh, was faced by Elijah and Elisha. He's in the synagogue in his hometown, and he reads their hearts. And he says, you're going to apply your own reason to decide if I'm qualified to be a prophet. You're going to rely upon your own strength. You're going to cite Proverbs, and you're going to check my resume. Do we believe in his miracles? Do we know his ancestry? Do we know where he's coming from? And you're going to set yourselves up as a standard to examine my prophecy. And he says, when you do that, you place yourself into the rule of authority, and you're not able to be humble to receive the gifts that the Lord would bring. And he cites in this two examples. He takes us back to the time of Elisha and Elisha and their ministry. So what happens? Because the people of God did not answer Elijah, Elijah goes to the Phoenicians, he goes to these pagan peoples, and there's a widow there who is poor. She's so poor that she's about to die of hunger due to the drought that the Lord has brought. She's in this town of Zarephath near Tyre and Sidon, and she tells Elijah, I'm about to bake my last bit of flour to feed myself and my son, and then we're going to die. And Elijah says, well, before you do that, go ahead and bake something for me and feed me. What does it require for this widow to do that? It requires the utmost of humility and obedience to recognize that she is going to serve out of her own poverty and need and be obedient to the prophet of God. She does that, and the whole time that Elijah is with her, the jar of oil doesn't run out, and neither does the jug of flour. Right? It is preserved miraculously for that whole season. Out of her humility and her obedience to the prophet and to the Lord. Similarly, Elisha, when Naaman the general comes down to be healed by his leprosy, is told, wash in the waters of the Jordan. And this makes Naaman angry. Naaman says, I'm a great general from a great place in Syria. We've got real rivers. Not like this little creek bed that you call a river in the Jordan. We've got mighty rivers. Why wouldn't I go and, and, and wash myself there? 
But Naaman's servants speak to him and they say, how easy would it be for you to be obedient? We've come all this way and how easy will it be for you to be washed in these waters? And Naaman repents of his pride and is obedient at the word of his servants. It's remarkable. The transformation, the conviction, what we might call repentance of Naaman. He responds to his servants, he bathes in the river Jordan, and he's healed. The Lord is saying, a Phoenician and a Syrian will be healed before you because of their humility and their obedience. And this is why they try to kill him. Because he's saying it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your resume is, it doesn't matter who your parents are, but if you will respond in humility and obedience, the Lord would heal the whole world. And they become angry. This is the tenor in which St. Paul comes to the Corinthians to correct them and their pride. They're suffering from the same pride that the people of Israel, that the people of Nazareth were suffering from. They're saying, we've received the Holy Spirit. We've been given the gift of tongues. Now it's time for us to celebrate our own power and greatness. And Paul is saying, you've missed the entire importance of what it is to be the church. You've missed it. He says the gift of tongues is an incredible gift, and of course it is. The gift of tongues allows us to pray when we don't have words. It allows the Holy Spirit to speak through us. It allows us to be healed. It allows our minds to be set right. It allows anxiety and depression to be melted away. And for the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to flow in us, we receive um, emboldenedness. We receive joy in praying through tongues. And, And Paul says, I pray more than any of you. Yet what's good for the church as a whole as we meet is prophecy. And he says that that is for the believer. I'll bring you to Acts chapter 10, which we've talked about several times before. You remember when the Apostle Peter goes to Cornelius the centurion, and he speaks to the family that's gathered in Cornelius' house. Do you remember that? They're Greeks, they're pagans, and uh, Peter goes and he speaks to them. What does Peter do? Does he go and speak in tongues in their midst? No. He speaks their language and he explains the gospel to them in their own language and their own understanding, right? And they're convicted by the Holy Spirit by understanding the gospel message and how do the people that are gathered respond? They speak in tongues. So Peter comes as a believer and he preaches the gospel. The unbelievers receive the gift of tongues and the sign of the Spirit is upon them. And then Peter says, who's going to withhold water? Right? Who is going to forbid them from being baptized? So our response in having tongues then is to come together as those that speak tongues and to pray for the gift of interpretation. 
Because if those who speak tongues come together and pray for interpretation and receive it, now there's a word of prophecy that can be given to the body. And we're all emboldened and strengthened then to be able to proclaim the word of God. Because that's the gift for all of us as believers. We're all given, right, the responsibility to proclaim the gospel so that those who do not know it will receive it and will hear it and will be transformed. That is our job as the church that gathers. It's not just my job. It's not just catechists' jobs. It's the job of all believers gathered together to proclaim the gospel to those that would come as visitors, to unbelievers that would come into our midst, for those that we meet in our jobs and in the marketplace. We are supposed to have the gospel upon our lips clearly stated so that we can see transformation in the lives of those who do not know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we're willing, if we're willing to do that, if we're willing to proclaim the gospel, if we're willing to do it in humility and with obedience, then that jar of oil will not run out. That jug of flour will maintain. And when we begin to say, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, the Lord will respond, you're right. But I am. And it's my word and my kingdom that shall be proclaimed. And if we will but speak his words in humility and obedience, his kingdom will never end. And we will see his grace flow like wine in a river.